Welcome to the Gamers Tavern episode 27. This episode, legendary game designer Rich Baker joins us for a continuation of our campaign setting series as we talk about Birthright. Considering this is Ross's favorite campaign setting, this is another episode where I don't talk a lot. But there's a lot of great information in this episode about a campaign setting that was just a bit before it's time. So grab a drink from the bar and take a seat at the table in the corner, and we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. DriveThruRPG is the place to go to purchase digital copies of your favorite games. Dungeons & Dragons, Shadowrun, World of Darkness, Savage Worlds, Numenera, Fate, and so many more. Do you long for the feel of actual paper in your hands? Well, they sell physical products too. Just go to GamersTavern.org and click on the link in the show notes to find your favorite games and support the podcast with every purchase. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the Gamers Tavern. I'm Ross Watson, your host. And I'm Zero Mott Jr. And tonight we have with us uh, one of my favorite game designers, Rich Baker. Uh, hi, everybody. I am like a kid on Christmas right now. One of the best things about <laughs> being the host of a podcast is you get to invite your gaming heroes onto the show and talk about the games you love the most. And I have got to say, Rich and the work that Rich has done on just all the numerous things that he's been involved in has been a huge inspiration to me in my career and like all of the games and stuff that I love. I, I trace a lot of it back to some of the stuff that that Rich Baker has done. So having him here on the show, I, you're going to just hear me goob out quite a bit for the listeners. So just just so you know, that's going to happen. Well, I'm, I'm very flattered. Uh, I don't know exactly what I did to deserve that, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you approve. Yeah, I was looking over uh, Rich's uh, Wikipedia page, and I'm like, we've had him on the show before, haven't we? And then I'm thinking back, no, we, I don't think we have. I just We've talked about him so much in his work <laughs> that it's just come up so often, it feels like you've been on. Well, uh, I really, you know, we, we had an opportunity to, we, we thought about bringing you on earlier, actually, because we were doing a, uh, a show on the Forgotten Realms setting. Okay. And we had Richard Lee Byers with us for that particular episode. Yeah, great guy. And Daryl and I talked about it, and I'm like, well, if, if I can get Richard Baker for the show, I really want him for Birthright. <laughs> I mean, not that he doesn't know a lot about Forgotten Realms, because he does know an awful lot about Forgotten Realms. But yeah, I, I, I'm I, I'm selfish that way. <laughs> you have no idea how much he has bugged me about recording this episode since I first decided to do the campaign, the campaign setting series that we're doing. He said, "When are we doing Birthright? We're we doing Birthright. Is Birthright coming up?" So the first thing we do when we bring on a guest, uh, we ask them to tell us and tell the listeners a little bit about who they are and where they're known for uh, in the gaming industry. And we call this the gaming character sheet. So, Rich Baker, if you would, what is your gaming character sheet like? My career starts uh, all the way back in 1991. Upon getting out of the Navy, I had been on active duty for three years. I was sending resumes around to basically everyone looking for what the next step in my career was going to be. And I sent one to TSR for just the pure hell of it. Because I've been a D&D &D fan from a long ways back, and I thought, hey, it might be kind of cool to take a shot at being a game designer. Well, they liked my resume enough, or at least they found it interesting enough, that they actually brought me out for an interview, and I, lo and behold, I wound up getting the job. So the very first thing I ever worked on uh, for TSR way back in the day was a Spelljammer product called uh, The Rock of Brawl. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I know that one. Yep. In my, in my pedigree, that's a, that is product number one. Uh, I, I stayed with TSR through the nineties working on products in, uh, Dark Sun, a lot of stuff in the, the conventional, uh, uh just a straight up D and D line. For example, the, uh, the player's option books, uh, player's option combat and tactics and player's option, uh, spells and magic. Those were a couple of product ideas I had and I pitched and I got a chance to work on. From there, we went on to, uh, beginning to work on the uh, alternative science fiction role playing game, uh, which I co-wrote with Bill Slavisek. But along about, oh, late 96, early 97, of course, TSR was coming on hard times. So Wizards of the Coast stepped in and wound up uh, buying TSR. Wizards uh, made a pretty generous offer to bring essentially the whole creative staff for D- uh, for D&D at the time uh, out to Seattle uh, to come to work for Wizards and basically get a chance to keep on doing uh, this great, cool, awesome job we were already having a chance to do. And along with about oh, 50 of my closest friends... We all moved out to uh, the Seattle area en masse and basically formed the D&D team uh, for Wizards of the Coast. My good friend Ed Stark tells a, a, a great story just about that exactly. Uh, you know, of course, he, he worked with you on the setting, setting we're going to talk about tonight, Birthright. So I've kind of made a hobby out of stalking the uh, the Birthright creators and listening to their stories. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, yeah I, Colin the, on already. So and we've we've had Colin Baker on the show already. Yeah. So uh, Colin uh, McComb, Colin McComb. Yeah. I know what you meant. No, we we haven't had any doctors on yet. So. No doctors. We're really hoping for David Tennant though. <laughs> but we're, but we're uh, uh, the move out to Seattle. It's a it's a very interesting story. If you ever get a chance to talk to Ed Stark, uh, any of the listeners, uh, definitely ask him about it because he's very entertaining when he discusses it. it yeah, it was it was uh, something that. Obviously, you know, I, I never really expected I was going to uh, stick out here as long as I have, but my wife and I and, uh, and our kids, it turns out, you know, hey, we love this corner of the country. It really is a, a gaming mecca, of course, with Wizards being here and, and so much of the computer gaming business is being located right in the same area. So it, it's really just been a, a good spot to be. Anyway, uh, to continue on my, my gaming character sheet, we did wind up uh, getting Alternity published and uh, got a chance to do some cool stuff with that, like the Star Drive campaign setting and the Dark Matter campaign setting. Then we got very serious about doing uh, D&D 3rd Edition. So I was part of the initial 3rd uh, Edition team with Monty Cook and Skip Williams, and the three of us uh, spent uh, months and months uh, meeting and talking and discussing everything that needed fixing in D&D 2nd Edition and, and how to kind of modernize the game engine into something that was a little more of what a, a contemporary role-playing game would look like at that time as compared to something that still had its its roots in the early 70s. Jonathan Tweed, of course, joined the team uh, pretty shortly thereafter. Uh, Peter Atkinson was heavily involved the whole time along. We wound up knocking out 3rd edition and, and obviously got a chance to be a part of a very big renaissance in, in the RPG business at that time. From there, I went on to uh, manage the 3rd the, the edition Forgotten Realms team. I was a big part of the uh, third edition Forgotten Realms campaign setting uh, reboot that we did. Did lots of Which is excellent. stuff. So many, <laughs> too many products to name, I think. And uh, <laughs> uh, wound up being a part of the uh, fourth edition design team too and got a chance to write plenty of 4E stuff. And along the way, I also got a chance to scratch my uh, my uh, Navy roots, my wargaming roots by working on uh, various Axis and Allies titles and uh, the Axis and Allies miniatures game. And you did the Gamma World reboot as well, didn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Bruce Cordell and I basically yeah. did uh, the reboot of Gamma World based essentially on the 4th the edition game engine. Uh, hey, how it turned out, 
it was something that, that it was funny because Bill Slavisek, our director at the time, you know, called Bruce and I in and told us, uh, hey, we're going to do Game World and we want, you know, Bill, Bill pushed us towards make it goofy. And, and Bruce Cordell and, and I both looked at Bill and said, you know, yeah, we understand that a lot of people kind of look back on Gamma World as this crazy, goofy property. But when we were kids, we played it straight up. We thought it was really serious. I mean, yeah, it's a little goofy, but we didn't necessarily play it for laughs, right? We, we kind of, you know, played it, played it pretty serious. Uh, but we, you know, adjusted our attitudes a bit and came back and, uh, I think the fourth edition Gamma World, uh, uh, well, I want to call out just really quick uh, a couple of things you did in third edition that are are on my list of top products, uh, frankly, of all time. The Book of Nine Swords is just utterly brilliant. Well, thank you. It has it has gained a, a big following on a site called Fortune. I don't know if you're familiar with Fortune or not. Uh, no, uh, they have a nickname for it, and they have a nickname for this book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm and sorry, it still makes me laugh. It's the best nickname. It's called the Book of Weeaboo Fighting Magic. Weeaboo Fighting Magic. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because it's because it's obviously anime inspired and stuff like that. So, so you know, Weeaboo is basically a term for for people who are like anime fans and fighting magic. You know, the the mis- the intentional misspelling of it is it's just beautiful. <laughs> Um, but they love it, and and I loved it. I thought it was uh, just a brilliant way to kind of revitalize the idea of a you know a fighter type character in the uh, three five you know milieu, if you will. Sure. So so book of nine swords just uh, just fantastic. Now I I do have a quick question about that. Is that were there thing? I mean, there's always been a rumor that that was kind of a, a test bed for a lot of stuff that ended up in fourth edition. Uh, yeah, actually, we didn't necessarily set out to do that at first. Uh, we, we'd had the idea rattling around our our product brainstorming sessions for years of, hey, we need to make a book that's all about spells for fighters, you know, magic for fighters. What can we do that would, you know, that would scratch that itch? Because we thought that there's a, a potential out there for something that would be pretty cool for the, the folks who liked the configurability and the awesome special effects that were associated with wizard, wizard spells. But wanted to see that in a more martial character. Eventually, the the Tome of Battle, Book of Nine Swords, uh, made its way onto the schedule, and I was assigned to work on it. So I kind of dove in and 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 started tackling the the idea of, of quote spells for fighters, you know, and, and came up with something that was a, a pretty workable, complete system with it. But then, in uh, doing playtesting and discussion uh, around the department with it, some of the early fourth edition design work was already underway. We had a, a, a great discussion with uh, Andy Collins and Rob Hainsell and James Wyatt and myself, plus uh, Ibel Slavisek and a couple of other folks, where we really kind of looked at these two sort of parallel efforts that were going on at the same time and realized, you know, there's enough of the similar ideas that are being played here, the spells for fighters notion, and some of the power-based design that was going on in 4E, that, you know, maybe there's an opportunity here to kind of combine uh, the, these two notions. And first of all, It'll probably make the Tome of Battle a, a, a better book. Uh, but secondly, it'll also let us test out some of these concepts that we are beginning to really explore very seriously for fourth edition. So, for example, one of the things that we wanted to test very carefully in, in Tome of Battle was the way that you would regain and recharge your, your powers. So the three different classes that are part of Tome of Battle, each of them has essentially a different recharge mechanic, which is not to put too fine a point on it, a way to explain how discarded cards get back into your hand. Because a lot of this right. was influenced <laughs> very strongly by the guys in the Magic the Gathering team 
who were trying to kind of help us uh, look at D&D as, as managing a hand of powers as well as a role-playing game. Huh. Uh, so that, that sounds terrible. People always get angry when they, they think you're kind of mixing up your chocolate and your peanut butter there. But there was really a lot of good ideas and great discussion that came out of that, and, and that led to a lot of the final implementation of the Book of Nine Swords. Yeah, I'm the big 4th edition defender on this show. I actually like 4th edition D&D very, very much. So, <laughs> we're so not, I'm, I'm, let's, I'm let's God not get out. into that tonight. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that way lies madness. I'm not saying it's better than any other edition. I'm saying I like it. Listen, I have I have sat at the dinner table in between Ed Stark and Bill Slavichek when the subject of Edition Wars came up, and I thought, oh my God, I'm at ground zero. <laughs> <laughs> I am literally sitting between the, the heads of R&D for 3.5 and 4th edition right now. So, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think, you know, it's... I don't really put a whole lot of stock in the edition of what we're saying because I think that every edition of D&D uh, has been pretty good at doing what it set out to do. You know, I, I think 4th edition for, you know, for all the angst and, and gnashing of teeth that kind of came around about it, you know, I think it's still... <laughs> you know, there, there's some parts of fourth edition that I think are, are frankly just, you know, uh, just amazingly great. And I hope you will stay in, and be brought forward into the next edition of D&D when it comes out. What we like to say on the Gamers Tavern is that every edition of every game has its strengths and weaknesses. And there is no reason. Sorry, go ahead, Daryl. I was going to say, we also like to say edition wars are bullshit. Yeah, because there's really no reason. There's no reason to hate on someone else for liking a game that they like. That's the exactly. bottom line. Yeah. Uh, one last thing about third edition before we, uh, you know, move on to the next step here is, uh, there's this really fantastic venture that I don't think a lot of people know about. Um, it's just a brilliant Red adventure. Hand of Doom. The Red Hand of Doom. <laughs> well, uh, now, thank you. Can you briefly, just for the listeners, tell them what Red Hand of Doom is about? Uh, so Red Hand of Doom, uh, is a fairly substantial, uh, super adventure. It's, I want to say it's a uh, 160 pages or so. It's, it's something you would actually be playing for months and months and months. But it, it arose out of the, out of the idea that, uh, when I was looking at, okay, it's time to work on the super adventure I've been assigned to work on for this year. And I was thinking, what kind of adventure do, do I see that's out there that I really want to explore? I felt like it had really been a, a very long time, uh, since D&D had really delved into a very classic trope of fantasy fiction, which is we have to stop a gigantic horde. It is totally classic. I think that you, you nailed it. It is that's the feel you get from reading Ranhead Doom. Is it's like a classic D and D adventure. It hits all those tropes, and it gets into some of the really cool uh, goblinoid races, which are one of my favorite things. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and it was a, it was one of the few it was one of those few epic adventures I remember where I was really really focused on that sort of low to mid tier play. Like it, I don't remember anything. Now, I'm more, I know more about the fourth edition redo of Red Hand of Doom, but it, it, it stuck around that, you know, third to eighth level butter zone a yeah. lot. And there weren't a lot of really big giant adventures at that scale. Yeah. And, and like I said, it was also just simply the, the attraction of telling the story of something that you see happen over and over and over again in your uh, favorite fantasy novels of, you know, hey, the, the army of darkness is storming the, 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 the kingdom of the good guys. You have to stop it. And, you know, that's such a, a classic beat in fantasy fiction. It's been told, you know, and I mean, I, all going back all the way to the Lord of the Rings and the Narnia stories and just over and over and over again. And, and there just were so few adventures out there 
that really took this head on and tried to give you a good way to interact with it as, as player characters, the, the heroes of the setting. So it should come as no surprise to listeners, I am a big fan of Rich Baker's adventures. I, I have all of his Dungeon Magazine adventures. I like them a lot. Uh, <laughs> Red Hand of Doom is one of my favorites. And when we uh, kickstarted Accursed, I approached Rich and I, I asked him if we could end up doing some kind of uh, swap with Permeable Thule. So uh, I'm very pleased to say, uh, on the, for the first time on the show actually, uh, Richard Baker's adventure for Accursed is called The Banshee of Loch Fenere. And it, by the time the show airs, it will be available on DriveThruRPG for the Savage World uh, setting, my Savage World setting called Accursed. And I awesome. saw the cover art for the thing. Oh my god, it's gorgeous. The cover art is beautiful, but it does reflect the overall quality of the adventure inside. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> As I was going to say, I, I, I had a lot of fun working on it. Uh, very much like, uh, like we were just saying with Red Handed Doom, that I sat down and said, okay, what's kind of the iconic you know, that kind of court adventure. Uh, when I had a chance to really get familiar with the uh, accursed setting and, and really kind of looked it over, and I will say uh, Ross gave me a, a ton of latitude to kind of say, hey, here's this entire world. Find the thing <laughs> in here that you most want to, mm-hmm. you know, tell a story about. You know, I, I gave it a good read. I looked through it. I thought about it a little bit, and I, I decided that the thing that kind of caught my eye was the the story of King Galen of... Uh, uh, now I'm totally going to garble the name. Uh, help me out. It's uh, Karen Kanan. Karen Kanan. Yes. Uh, thank you. It's because, our fantasy you know, there's Scotland. A, there's there's a horrible tragedy there. Of you know, <laughs> this guy was persuaded or beguiled into slaughtering his whole family. There's a lot of emotion to work with there. You can do a lot with that, and it just kind of naturally led into uh, the notion of a, you know, of a, of ghosts and banshees and Scottish castles. And man, that's yeah. How, how can you go wrong? <laughs> Yeah, I, I actually wrote the whole setting for Karen Kane, and, and uh, I was going for as Macbeth as possible. <laughs> that was that was what I was going to say. It came off to me when I saw the cover. I was like, "Dude, this is so Macbeth right now." Oh yeah, God, I can't I can't wait to get my hands on it. So uh, yeah, it, I just wanted to make sure and point that out since we were talking about riches and his adventures. Uh, lastly, uh, you know, it's 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 important to point out that I have actually interviewed Rich on my blog, uh, Rig Warden. And one thing that I I found out in that interview that I never got a chance to follow up on uh, is that you actually enjoy Champions. Is that right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, from way back in the day. Because, like, the two things that I talk about the most on this podcast are probably Birthright and Champions. <laughs> yeah. yep. I wish I could find more people to play Champions with. It's it's just... Me too! Yeah, it, it's hard to... It's hard to, uh, it's hard to round up a, a gang of, of people for it, and I... And I think it's a little bit tough to, to put together a long-running Supers game. You have to kind of maybe sell your gaming group on, hey, let's play Supers for like eight or ten sessions and, and then move back to whatever long ra- uh, long-running long game we want to we want to do. And, and if you wind up getting four sessions out of them, great. Yeah. <laughs> well, something so, tells me if you decide to do something online like Skype or Hangouts, Ross will be more than game. Oh, hell yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's let's move on to the next step of our podcast. It's called Tavern Tales. And we're just going to ask our guests to give us a story of a memorable die roll. You know, it, this is going to sound kind of soulless on my part, but I, I don't really think of the, the die roll as governing a, a game in quite that way. I mean, I mean, I can remember, you know, a couple of times where I scored a, you know, a crit and I was pretty happy about the fact that I did. Tell, this is not me. terribly urgent, I guess, but this is just kind of amusing at the time. Uh, we were playing in second edition D&D, the, uh, Night Below campaign. 
Oh, excellent campaign. Yeah, really great stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm amazed, by the way, that they haven't got, ever gotten around to doing a, you know, a 3E or a 4E version of that because it was such a, such a cool setting. But I was playing the wizard of the party and we just started. I'm a first level character. I've thrown my spell. I, I've got nothing left and we're being, uh, the party's being mauled by goblins. And I asked the DM, I was like, you know, we're on a road. Is there good sized stone nearby or something? And the DM, John Ratlow says, sure, there's, you know, you're on a road. There, there's rocks or whatever. I was great. I pick up a rock and I throw it at the goblin. And sure enough, I crit the goblin and just killed it outright with a throwing stone because, you know, God, it's a second edition goblin. It's got like two hit points. <laughs> nice. So, so yes, the mage, the, the, the master of intellect and, and magic managed to brain a goblin with a thrown rock, you know, and that just kind of hung on that character that entire campaign. You know, and, Never threw a rock again in that campaign, right? Because by the time you get second level, you have a couple more spells. Now you're, you know, eventually you never have to do it again. But yeah. That reminds me of a, a gnome wizard I played in third edition who was far more deadly with his crossbow than he was with any of his spells. <laughs> I'd say you, you don't want to throw another rock after that because you've already set a precedent. And if you never do it again, you can always say, oh, yeah, you want me to throw a rock at you? Yeah. I didn't think so. <laughs> Look so, at how he's uh, got a rock. Yeah, really. <laughs> Who cares about the fireball, the lightning bolt? He has a rock. Watch out for those rocks. Uh, the next thing is we're going to talk about what we've been playing lately. I'm going I'm to start with Daryl, actually. Daryl, what have you been playing lately? This is hopefully the last time I will be saying this. I haven't had a lot of time for gaming because I've been doing a lot of work on the site. We brought on board a new editor I talked about in a couple episodes ago, Nicholas Jaworski, who is doing an excellent job of taking a lot of this work off me. And hopefully I'll be uh, looking at, I'm looking to start playtesting a couple of things and doing some more reviews for the site. So I'll be able to talk more later, but yeah, Shadowrun Game Table, we've been playing that. We had a really, really interesting adventure that you guys will hear probably about a month, month and a half. Oh, where yes, some it was really great. <laughs> It was a very, very episode, very focused on my character, and Rafe got a lot of really, really good moments in it, too. He got to play the uh, big damn hero. <laughs> well, so did you. I, I got to I got to play the cool baddest you pushed me too far. At the end of the adventure, the, it was you who walked out of the corporate headquarters with both of our characters over your shoulder. So, <laughs> well, was, well I, I, I looked out in spoilers. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it, it's, it's kind of interesting. It takes my character on a massive left turn. I don't know where things are going to go from here. Uh, but it's, it's definitely interesting. Uh, there is one thing that's happened this week that I would like Ross to talk about uh, something about RPG Geek. Yes, I am. Uh, well, by the time you hear this, it will be over. But uh, currently, uh, for the week of April 1st, and it is not an April Fool's joke, I am the <laughs> RPG Geek of the Week at RPG Geek. I and we'll have a link in the show notes look at all the questions Thank people have been asking them. Yeah, it's it's been the, the response there has been wonderful. Uh, the RPG Geek community and the board game geek community and all those guys they're 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 wonderful people, and I'm I'm very honored to have been chosen. So uh, thank you, and uh, definitely go check it out. Well, by the, again, I'll be it, it'll be someone else by the time you hear this podcast, but go go look at well, it I'll, anyway. I'll have, I'll have a link to the archives so you can see where the community's been asking him a lot of really really cool interesting questions, and he's been going through and answering them. So you'll learn a lot more about Ross through this. And I'm still kind of wondering about that two truths and a lie because i thought all three of those were true well that's the best way to do the two truths and a lie is to make them all seem totally plausible <laughs> in my opinion 
Because, uh, yes, Shadows Angeles, and that totally seems like something you would do. What uh, What have you been playing lately, Rich? Uh, well, uh, we've actually been playing a fair amount of Primeval Fool, as you might expect. That is the campaign setting that I and my partners at the Sasquatch Game Studio are putting together. We kickstarted it uh, last summer, and uh, we've been uh, playing it uh, a lot, pretty much, uh, oh gosh, off and on now for uh, for a year or so as we're testing out different aspects of the setting and, and also just, just playing it to kind of see, you know, how does the energy feel, right? How does, how's it, how's it working for us? So one of the things we hadn't done a lot of, uh, beforehand is we hadn't played a lot of high level fool up to this point. So our, our current game goal is to, right, we're playing a high paragon level fourth edition fool because that's one of the little brackets we haven't really been trying out much yet. That's part of the challenge of, of, by the way, doing a setting that you are simultaneously writing in, in three game editions because fool is uh, going to be available for Pathfinder in uh, 4th edition D&D, and also in the 13th Age rule set. Yeah, I remember when this Kickstarter was up, I made sure to point that out a lot of, over on Any Cool News, because that was, no one else is really doing, a lot of people are throwing, Savage Worlds and kicks and the goal is Pathfinder and maybe 13th Age. No one's doing 4th and Pathfinder and 13th Age, pretty much three of the biggest D&D games that are current, currently available. So, Rich, what there. is, um, if you could just give us the, the elevator pitch for Primeval Fool. I mean, I know what it's about, but uh, our listeners would sure like to know. Primeval Fool is basically a savage, barbaric world. It draws upon traditions of uh, sword and sorcery as opposed to high fantasy. So think along the lines of Conan stories more than Lord of the Rings. Inspired by some of the, the old Conan stories, a lot of Robert E. Howard's old stories were very strongly tied into or influenced by the Cthulhu mythos. Now that I've actually stretched out my elevator pitch to like, you know, a minute, let me come back around to the real elevator pitch, which is, it's Conan versus <laughs> Cthulhu. Nice. So, <laughs> And if I believe you hit the first stretch goal, is that right? And a certain someone might be doing something for it? That That is true. The Accursed Trio are going to uh, provide a uh, an adventure for Primeval Thule. John Dunn is actually hard at work on that right now. So, oh, yeah, we're really excited. I've, I've had enough of, of Thule uh, right, right in front of my face that I haven't, you know, it's like, okay, the accursed guys are on it. Great, fine. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I, I know they're on it. I'm good. I've got, you know, I've got a, a layout to, to wrangle. So, but it's been kind I of. I do all the layout for accursed, so I know what you mean. Just this last week, as I took a look at our monster chapter that we had planned. And I did some thinking about it and realized that we dropped kind of strange Cthulhu uh, mythos creature mentions here and there throughout the book. Things like uh, Migo and uh, Moonbeasts and Shoggoths and stuff like that. And we hadn't really planned on including those in the monster chapter because we figured that most people kind of knew what they were. And the stats for them are already available for, for the Pathfinder guys because the Pathfinder bestiaries uh, support those pretty well. But, you know, then we realized, okay... First of all, not uh, not every Pathfinder GM is going to have all the best Aries right at hand. And, you know, for the 4th edition guys and the 13th age guys, they probably just want to have those stats to begin with. So we, we juggled our, our monster chapter around and made a little room to get those classic monsters in. And for the Pathfinder guys, they're actually slightly different uh, versions of them. So instead of just giving you the Mego stats that are in the, the open game content, we presented the Thulean Mego and explained why it's a little bit different, you know, from the run-of-the-mill Mego you might want. <laughs> that sounds funny when you put it that way. The run-of-the-mill Mego you just might meet out there because they're around. <laughs> just, just walking down the street, there's a Mego, like your average everyday neighbor, friendly neighborhood Mego. How's it going? Uh, so, I see you uh, at the bus stop every day. Another thing that I'm playing recently is uh, 
I am playtesting a uh, board game design of mine, trying it out on my friends and family. And I'm hoping that we might uh, uh, be able to actually uh, show this off at uh, Gen Con and, uh, you know, arrange some uh, some secret playtests for people who uh, want to sign up and, and get a chance to get a sneak peek at a board game design that was in the works. And we might be looking to try yeah, and kickstart that sometime after Gen Con. Yeah, you might want to, uh, you know, connect with your friendly neighborhood podcasters and let us get a sneak peek <laughs> at it, maybe. Awesome. And your friendly neighborhood game reviewer for a big media website. Yes. I'm interested, uh, and I'm curious to see where that goes. Absolutely. Uh, as for myself, I've been uh, GMing a Pathfinder game here in uh, Texas with some of my friends, including a, at least one of my friends who swore he would never play another D20 game ever again. And we're using the uh, most awesome random roll tables that we can find to do everything randomly because that's the way we want to we want to <laughs> roll. Uh, we're using the awesome central casting Heroes of Legend book. Uh, we're using the uh, you know DMG random encounter random treasure tables. Um, it's it's crazy fun because we are just literally making up everything as we go, and uh, we're having a good time with that. As well, Ross, if you want, I've got a six hundred die table for a wand of wonder. If you want yeah, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> Wands of Wonder and uh, Deck of Many Things are two ways to break your game. Uh, so I'm, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna not so oh, say yeah. no to that. But yeah, we uh, <laughs> we've had a good time with that. I'm playing I'm playing in a Champions game, and I kind of wanted to tell Rich about this. Oh, sweet. Uh, a, f- <laughs> a friend of mine is running uh, because I begged him because I could literally find no one in Texas to to play Champions with. He is running for me a Skype game where we're playing the uh, Descendants of the 1980s. Steranko era Avengers. Okay. It's called Avengers Next Generation, and uh, I am playing uh, Valkyrie 2, who is the daughter of uh, the Valkyrie and Fandral the Dashing of the Warriors 3. Oh, nice. It is really fun. Uh, we have just discovered that Mordred has turned all of New York into a, a fantasy dimension by stealing the Darkhold from Doctor Strange. Because uh, he just <laughs> rolls that way. Yeah. Because that's how he does things. Uh, so it's, it's pretty awesome having a good time with that. And, uh, of course, doing the game table with Daryl. Very nice. Okay, so we're going to jump into the meat of the topic for tonight, because All About Tonight is about one of the settings, one of the unfortunately more forgotten settings of the uh, D&D worlds, Birthright. And I don't know a whole lot about Birthright, because it was a little bit before my time, because I got into D&D a lot in 3rd edition. Uh, when the first D20 system books came out back in 2000 and Birthright was already kind of fallen by the wayside by then. And it's such a shame it was ahead of its time because I, I've done a lot of reading about it since Ross keeps talking a lot about the setting. And it really, really, uh, you guys correct me if I'm wrong here. It has a really big Westeros feel to it in the tone. In I, the, I, the I find myself often wondering if uh, it turns out that George Martin was a Birthright fan. Because I, when I read the, when I read the, the you know when I read his stuff, it's like this you know this there's definitely some similarities here you know I you know it, I mean obviously uh, even in like a turn of phrase like the Iron Throne you know okay well yeah yeah mm-hmm. sure that, that could come from a lot of places right but but still there's a strong story out there and I put a lot of faith in it just because I believe it's possible but there's a strong story out there that Ed Stark the guy who wrote a lot of Birthright was on a panel with George Martin back in the day. And supposedly the story goes like this, that Martin looked over at Ed and said, you have a really interesting name, sir. 
<laughs> that's how that's how Ed tells the story, and you know, I I think it's plausible. So there may not be, you know, there may be some truth to that whole uh, you know connection between these two things. And we know Martin's a gamer, so absolutely. So that's one thing I kind of wanted to bring up here. I, I, everything I've read about Birthright, it gives me a very big Westeros, Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire vibe to it, but it really feels like it's its own unique thing at the same time as well. And rather than, you know, try to try to parse it myself whenever I've got probably two of the biggest experts on the setting around here, can you guys kind of tell us and the listeners who may have been a little bit too young for Birthright when it came out, what exactly is the setting like? What's the, the thing for Birthright well, uh, that sets it apart from the other campaign settings? The, the, the basic premise behind Birthright, the, 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 the elevator pitch, if you will, is simply this is the setting where your character is a king. That back in, gosh, about 93, 94, when the, the, the creative folks at TSR were casting about <laughs> trying to decide what our, what our next, uh, new world we wanted to, de- de- debut was, we threw, you know, there was a, basically an open call to everyone in the department to, hey, you know, pitch your idea about what a, what an interesting world would be. They didn't like any of the worlds that we pitched. But the idea kind of came down from, essentially, believe it or not, from the higher management that, you know, hey, we'd like to see a, a setting that focused a lot on nobility. It's like, well, uh, okay, sure. You know, if you, I'm a little crushed you didn't like my Sunset Empires idea or, you know, John Pickens Jigsaw World <laughs> idea or the other, or Jeff Grubb's awesome, uh, uh, mountain and skyship and cloud world idea. But, uh, okay, you know, setting about nobles, sure. Let, let's take that and run with it. So Colin McComb and I, yeah, yeah, we're, we're got the job of, hey, here's, here's the very basic premise. This is the, campaign where your your character gets to be the king now take that and run with it and out of that of course developed uh uh all the premises uh associated with birthright that the idea that there is uh literally a divine right of kings uh that there is something special about the characters who become the kings in this world uh that the kings are also adventurers and and heroic characters at the same time that they are the rulers a lot of the features of the the world were derived from a fantasy novel that uh, I had written actually while I was in the Navy, of all things. And the Falcon and the Wolf. Yeah, though the the original version was called uh, Kingslayer was my original working title for it. Uh, the Falcon and the Wolf that actually was published. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, what's the chuckle for? I'm a big Game of Thrones fan. Okay, sure. Yeah, uh, I'm seeing I'm seeing the parallels after the fact. Right. Well, it, it, it turns out. I want to be clear in, to the listeners: this predates Game of Thrones by about what about a decade? By about a decade, yeah. Yeah. Now, I will say, in 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 defense of Game of Thrones, right, that the the novel that I wrote called Kingslayer, I don't think ever saw the light of day. Maybe I might have mentioned the name, uh, like once, like in the foreword of the Birthright setting, but I never published it. You know, never went anywhere. But it did give me the the chassis for. At least one of the five kingdoms, uh, or five nationalities that made up the continent on which Birthright was set. Uh, the Anwirian Empire, uh, essentially was the, something that came right out of a novel that I had worked on and never sold. The other ones, Colin and, and I cooked up, uh, with, you know, months of concept meetings and discussions and batting ideas around. And, uh, the, the premise of the world obviously is your character is a king. Uh, your character is also a hero, a hero and adventurer. It's a low magic world. It's a world that has a, a fairly high, uh, fidelity towards, you know, or, uh, what, what the quote real world 
you know, uh, version of D&D might look like. Uh, so you don't necessarily have um, a whole lot of archmages around. You don't have magic being used as technology. Um, it's a it's a kind of gritty, low magic setting that's very heavy in politics and intrigue. When you really, yeah, if you choose to play up those angles, and it, the the cultures of the of the setting are are relatively realistic. The cultures, obviously, uh, and Weir is kind of a probably best thought of as, as sort of a, an amalgam of like uh, medieval France or England. Um, there is a country that looks a lot like Germany of the Hanseatic League. There's another one that's very Moorish or Arabian in feel. There's another one that's very Russian or Slavic in feel. So all these things kind of have very strong groundings in the real world. And I think because of that, a lot of people appreciated the just the texture of it, the, the sense of realism. I tried to capture that same texture in Accursed when I was building the different cultures and basing them off of real world uh, cultures along the way. And that was a big tip we had in the world building episode that we did. Yeah. Where we talked a lot about draw and file off the serial numbers. So it's right. this isn't necessarily medieval England, France, but you see where we're coming from. Now, one of the, you know, I, I'm not going to go through the whole Wikipedia page on Birthright because you can go look it up. If you're really interested, you can get all the details there. But the, the high points uh, is the, there's, the first thing you need to know is that the old gods are dead. There was this big war between the old gods and the, and the, and the, the, the evil god. And, um, during this conflict, they all saw, they all died fighting each other. The, the gods sacrificed themselves to destroy the evil god. And, uh, what this did is it rained down divine essence across all the people who were involved in that battle. And it was a huge, huge battle. It was the final, uh, confrontation between Sauron and, and, the forces of light, if you will, in a Tolkien, you know, type of approach. So everybody who was at that battle who survived, because there was kind of a cataclysmic, you know, kaboom. Everybody who survived that battle, uh, got some of the, 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 uh, the divine essence into their, their bodies and, and it became what was known as a bloodline because you could pass it on to your children. Your bloodline, you know, could gain, could be stronger or weaker depending on how, how close you were to the explosion, and how far away. And then over time, you know, you could do things that would either strengthen or weaken that bloodline as well. This was the the key to the idea of the divine right, um, because your bloodline was literally connected to the land that you ruled. And I think they were going for a very Arthurian, you know, if the land does well, you do well. So that's the first thing you need to know. The, the, oh, the old gods are dead. There are now new gods, but the old gods are all dead, and their their essence has kind of been placed into lots and lots and lots of living people on the uh, the world. The second thing you need to know is that uh, this empire that Rich was talking about, the Anwirian Empire, they conquered most of the known world. Uh, they they expanded greatly uh, <laughs> from their home. Uh, they they went north and they conquered a place called the Rearc Highlands. They went west and they conquered the uh, the Moorish peoples, which was called the uh, the Kanasi. They actually w- uh, went uh, northeast and conquered the Hanseatic League guys, the Brechter. The only people they didn't actually like take over was the the mongolian russian guys in the place called uh, vosgard and even then it was a close run thing <laughs> so the so the, the the empire actually ruled a ton of the known world but unfortunately that empire came to an end it was was it roughly 500 years before Rich? Uh, yeah yeah uh, it roughly exactly uh, and so I'll roughly tell you 500 about the uh, about the expansion of the Anwayan empire which i don't think i've ever mentioned anyone so here's a here's a completely Ooh. little new tidbit of uh, birthright lore and Ross is now drooling. I am. 
one of the little inspirations for this particular notion of the growth and history and collapse of the Anwayan Empire was actually the uh, Tolkien's history of Gondor. Oh yeah, that yeah. The, the basic idea was that Gondor, of course, was founded at the end of the Second Age, and early in the Third Age, Gondor had a great thousand years or so, where Gondor expanded to cover this huge area and actually um, the Numenorians negated, you know, the, most of the Middle Earth in a lot of ways before the last king of Gondor uh, died, and and it, Gondor started kind of collapsing back in from its from its huge expanse. So that was definitely a, an influence in that in that whole notion. That was definitely something I was curious about because, like I said, there's a lot of, if you're looking at it as someone who didn't read it before Game of Thrones, there's a lot of Game of Thrones in Birthright, but if you look beyond, okay, strip out my knowledge, read this as someone who's never read Game of Thrones, it's very reminiscent of the pre-Hobbit era Middle Earth in that there's these little kingdoms that are all ruled, but they used to be one kingdom yes and that's it used to be gondor ruled everything and not rohan and uh was it the riverdale and all the other all the other kingdoms that were middle earth and that's that's basically what happened is the empire of van weir came to an end when the last emperor died um fighting the big bad uh we'll, we'll talk about him later on but he went up to fight the big bad the gorgon and uh died because his divine right to rule was tied into his ability to rule the empire it, it, I, I believe that this was a really neat way of combining the story with the mechanics, because you could tell, oh shit, this is just not gonna work. <laughs> so combining the story with the mechanics, once he was gone, there was simply no way to keep the Empire together, and it fell apart, and now, uh, 500 years later, when you play, when, in the contemporary setting of Birthright, you are existing in the shattered remnants of that, of that huge Empire, which is kind of the, one of the key driving goals of, uh, well, not driving goals, one of the driving forces of the political movements and so forth in uh, in Birthright is the idea of somehow reestablishing or reunifying at least and we're itself and then maybe you know it's a long term goal maybe you know reestablishing contact with the other the other realms as well. This is certainly where that whole uh, Game of Thrones parallel is really prevalent. Because the people in, in that particular corner of the world, the Van Weir, there's about, oh, half a dozen or so very serious contenders who are people who might be strong enough to actually make themselves emperor out of the, uh, over this whole corner of the continent again. And they are basically enmeshed in a sort of permanent rivalry, uh, where they're always trying to line up different people to back them and try to see if they can build a coalition strong enough to let them finally stamp out their, their rivals, some of whom have, they've been rivals with for, for centuries. And, you know, get a chance to uh, essentially restart the Imperial Dynasty with your house as the head. And probably the last thing I want to point out is that uh, about Birthright that makes it unique is it has a dark twin called the Shadow World. And the the Shadow World is really kind of a reality just beyond the reality that most people, you know, understand. It's it's like the Tales from the Dark Side, you know. This is... I, I know something. I know something. Halflings are from there. Yes. Yes, they are. They're, they, they fled the shadow world because the essence of that evil god from back in the day, that's where he went, is he went to their homeland, which was this alternate dimension, and he, and he turned it into a place of horror and evil and, and undead creatures stalking the land. Um, that's, it, which is great because it's ju- literally just beyond your perceptions. And it's, it used to be one world, but then at some point in time it got split into these two separate parallel worlds that still kind of interact with each other. Right? Yeah. Or my. Well, sort of, kind of. I mean, yeah, sort of, kind of. I, 
Sorry, I'm I'm excited to actually know something about Birthright. <laughs> That's one of the little uh that this will never happen again in the rest of the episode. So <laughs> one of the little Easter eggs or or, or concept is the idea that they're called halflings not because they're half the size of a human, because they exist half in this world, half in the other. Yeah. Yeah, nice. it, the Shadow World is a really interesting and unique and uh, mysterious place. Uh, it's it kind of one of those things that I think we, we, we always wanted to know more about. And, uh, you know, before we get too far into, like, some of the other stuff, we should really point out um, some things about Birthright that are uh, important even today. Like, there's a, there's a really strong collection of fans at a place called Birthright.net. Sure, yeah. Uh, Which is where I learned that little bit about the halflings, <laughs> so. They maintain a it's, – it's run by a guy called uh, Arjun uh, – Arjun. And, uh, he's, he's been running it for decades now. <laughs> he's, he's been, uh, yeah, he's, he's the only guy I think who's possibly a bigger Birthright nerd than I am. <laughs> and that's saying a lot. Yeah, but he's run Birthright.net for, Birthright.net for a long time. I've been a member of that community for a long time. I, I worked on the, uh, the fan third edition conversion for Birthright that came out of that. Um, yeah, I want to say that site started in the nineties, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it was one of the, the original version of it before it was it got its own domain. You know, the thing about Birthright, I, I've run four different campaigns of it myself, which is a lot for any one setting. And I've played in three more. So seven times I have been in long campaigns about Birthright. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, the thing I, I think is really kind of sad about it is um, they did this book called the 30 Years of Adventure book for Dungeons & Dragons. I'm sure you're very familiar with this, Richard. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know what's really sad about that book? is it covers every single campaign setting ever made with one exception. <laughs> the only setting Ooh. left out of the 30 years of adventure book for D&D. The, I mean, they cover Mistara. They cover, you know, I mean, everything is in there except Birthright. I'm like, what? <laughs> how did this happen? <laughs> we kind of don't really know how well Birthright might have really done uh, because – the the setting had a relatively small print run, and keep in mind this is this decisions made by uh, by the business team at TSR, and they tried to keep as much of this stuff as far away from us creatives type as they as they could. They did not want us to know, you know what what they were up to. Uh, but I, I want to say the print run for Birthright was only about thirty five thousand copies, which sounds like a lot today. But, no, it's tiny back in those days. Yeah, yeah but and yeah. you know, in that time, you know, in the nineties, at kind of the heyday of the second edition, you know, a setting like Dark Sun, you know, I want to say sold like well over like eighty thousand copies or something, right? I mean, so it had a short print run. Yeah, Dark Sun, oh, Birthright, and Ravenloft all came out within a year, didn't they? Um, no, Ravenloft I think was a little bit older uh, than that, but. Um, well, the original adventure, I meant the setting, the campaign settings. No, I, I think the campaign setting was already fairly well established. Uh, I started at TSR in, in October 91, and I think uh, the Ravenloft setting was already well established by that point. I would take Richard's word for it, Daryl. Yeah. But anyway, long and short of it is uh, they had a relatively short print run, and it sold out, and they never reprinted it because uh, it turned out that all the stuff they put in the box made that box very, very expensive. Uh, to the point where if they had a bit of a better business team, they might have realized that they, they ought not to have put everything in the box that they did because they had a real hard time making money on it. And there was also that kind of strange, um, marketing approach with it where they, they were supporting the setting with all these tiny little booklets that were kind of mass produced. I mean, they were just, 
they've flooded the market with them. Like, you know, here's, here's one for Endear. Here's one for, not that these were terrible, but I mean, there were just so many of them and so quickly. And then, you know, they just weren't very, uh, there, there wasn't a lot of meat to them. You know what I mean? No, it, it, once again, it was just a, a crazy strategy that, you know, none yeah. of those creative types were, you know, wasn't our idea, right? We, you know, we literally just got handed this with, with literally just, you know, just months to go before the, the, the setting's going to come out where, Hey, new plan. We're actually going to produce, uh, four products at a time and we're going to do it, you know, four times a year. And so we need to come up with the, <laughs> you know, oh the, you know, the, you know, the, the first batch of things is going to come out bang, 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 you know. One of the first source books was, uh, of course, Blood Enemies, and that was covering the big bads, which are the Onshalian, and we'll get into them in a second. But this was their big villain book, and it was kind of being, my understanding is, uh, from Colin and, uh, and Ed, is this book was basically being developed at the same time as the box set. You kind of gave the ideas to Lizard, and he just kind of went on off on his own. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, so, crazy. <laughs> I really kind of wish that, you know, I was like, ooh, we, we did not, <laughs> We didn't get this right. This is not, you know, the same world that we're talking about over here, and and trying to square that circle was was a was quite a job. Yeah. So yeah, it, I agree with you. It just it it's a it's a strange story to think like how they handled the setting, how much how much different things could have gone, like you know how well it could have maybe possibly have have done for the company, you know, if it had been given a different shake like the other settings did. And, you know, another funny thing about it was we had naturally assumed that they would be wanting to launch a, a book line of some sort, you know, a, a fiction to go along with it. And every time that I kind of went and talked to the book department people about the setting, uh, you know, for months and months coming coming up, it's like, hey, here's a setting. I've been begging you guys for a chance to write a novel. I know this world better than anybody. Let me let me take a shot at writing a novel here and let me show you what I can do. And I was told, you know, time after time, no, we're not actually we're not actually going to publish no, uh, you know novels for this. You know, we're we're not going to do it. So don't worry about it. And then of course, literally like four months before the the box set was going to come out, upper management had a change of heart and said, "Hey, tell me about the novels we're doing for this." And the book team's like, "Yeah, I guess we're <laughs> novel immediately. Who do we know that could write this thing, you know, as fast as possible?" I pointed out that I knew the world better than anybody. And I, but of course, having not written a novel for them at that point they just said you know you might be great you might not we don't know but it's not fair to you to say your first shot at getting a novel with this is to do this thing that's going to be this huge rush project right away we'll, we'll get you a chance later but we got to go with a with a pro for the first book and uh they they brought this guy in and actually flew him out to wisconsin and and you know had a chance to meet with the guy and the, the first thing he said as he was kind of looking at the the material he's like okay so i looked over what you sent me and here's what's going to happen. Instead of being the guy who dies that the Empire ends that you've got here, instead, that's going to be the guy who builds the Empire. So he's going to be the guy who puts it all together and starts the Empire, and everything's groovy now. <laughs> wow. And we the were just flabbergasted. We were like, you don't understand only. the entire setting doesn't work if you do that. You you cannot do that. I, I kind of no, sat back the, and the, I... The, the guy on this podcast, podcast who does not understand, understand the setting is sitting here face palming <laughs> My initial reaction was, of course, to turn the table over. I I would, I would, I resisted. <laughs> I thought about it carefully. And Good I, for you. Because what I had to do is I had to kind of pull a little bit of judo on this guy. I had to kind of use his strength against him. So I I managed to say, instead of saying, no, 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 you can't do that, realizing that in a, in a, an amazing flash of insight for someone of my age at that time, 
that's probably not going to work. So instead, I, I managed to divert him and say, how about this? He still needs to be the guy that the Empire ends with because we that's that's pretty integral to the setting. But what it really is, if he doesn't do exactly what he does, if he doesn't die in this heroic way and make this heroic sacrifice, it would have been ten times worse. We got a lot more awesome stuff to talk about with Birthright, uh, but for now, we're just going to take a, a quick break to let everybody get another drink from the bar, and we'll be back in a few. Did you think the spirit store was only open during Halloween? Well, I've got some news for you. The perfect place for that hard-to-find accessory for your newest cosplay, unique home decor for your LARP, that awesome prop for your D&D game, they've got it all. Whether you're on a budget or you're looking for the highest quality product you can find, Spirit has what you need. Just go to the show notes or to GamersTavern.org and click on the affiliate link to support the show and find that perfect item now. And we're back with Rich Baker and Daryl Mott Jr. And we're talking about Birthright. The only thing I would just call back really quick is to say, I think I know who you're talking about, Rich, because I have read all the novels, but we don't need to go any further into that just to say, you know, (laughs) if you've read the novels, you may know who he's talking about. (laughs) So, Daryl, you know, we've been kind of telling you about what Birthright is is like and what it's about. What other questions would you ask since you're the guy who, you know, wants to know more about the setting? Yeah, ironically enough, I'm playing the Watson in this episode. (laughs) But there's one thing that I was kind of curious about. We've talked a lot about the humans in this world, and I mentioned halflings, but what about there's elves and dwarves in this too, and I know there's something interesting about them. And What are the other races like around here? Where are they hiding out with all the humans who are having their power struggle political stuff? The uh, the elves are actually, they were the original inhabitants of this continent called Cerulea, and they have essentially seen their their homeland uh, invaded and and taken over by humans. So they've really been kind of pushed back from a lot of their their ancient homelands and they are they're not really nice guys. In the the strongest influence for the elves of birthright frankly is kind of the more uh, Irish myths of the of the she so that oh yeah. In fact, one of the one of the the, the little uh, nuggets in the uh, the setting is the idea of uh this thing called the gilly she the hunt of the elves. The hunt of the elves. And the humans tell stories about how back in the days when humans were oh, savages stole the woods, hunt. the elves would ride ride out and hunt them down. You know, so that there's this long history of of strife between humans and elves, and the elves generally don't have much nice to say or do with humans, and <laughs> and try to try to keep them out of their lands as much as possible. Well, there's a big thing about elves. I mean, frankly, birthright elves are my favorite elves because they have this really cool, rich history. And one of the things about them is, remember we talked about that big battle between all the gods and the evil god back in the day? Well, the the evil god had kind of gone to the elves and said, you guys got a raw deal. Let me help you out. So during the during the final battle against Sauron, the elves were on his side. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was kind of a dramatic last minute uh, switch of loyalty on the part of the elves that actually carried the day for the forces of light. So the elves are kind of like everybody, uh, you know, this, this, this is a thing that is still remembered, you know, by the elves themselves because they're really long lived, but it's also remembered down through the ages by all the humans too. So they're very mistrustful of the elves, not only because the elves don't like humans in general, but also because they literally 
were on the side of evil during the big, huge, big fight until the last minute. So kind of like Vichy France and the French resistance sort of thing? Uh, maybe. Well, I, that's an interesting parallel tones to make. Of, overtones of that, maybe. Maybe. I, but just like, I've always, I've always loved that alien feel to them. Like they're, you know, they're, they're not really, like in a lot of other D&D realms, elves just kind of live amongst the other peoples. You know, they're, they're kind of part of the world. They're not really, you know, away from it so much. Um, although in Fret Realms, they do this a little bit with, uh, with Evermeet. But in, in Birthright, it's very much that whole, like, you know, in the elven lands, things are different. <laughs> so it's yeah, more Tolkien-esque. Uh, yeah. Real sense of apartness. Yeah. Agreed. And one thing I think is really interesting about elves, um, that, you know, Rich and Colin put into it was, um, now this is back in second edition, but they said that, um, there was no divine connection with the elves because first of all, they were still there when the, when the old gods died and the new gods were, you know, were risen up and all the new gods are human. So the elves are like, I'm not going to worship that guy. I, I've seen him tie his shoes. You know, <laughs> so so there's no such thing as elven uh, clerics, uh, paladins, etc., because they don't. All the gods are human, and they don't worship humans. And that's an interesting idea. Um, I think I liked one of the the things that third edition D and D came out with, which was this idea that you know you could actually gain divine power from uh, paradigms and ideals rather than like a specific deity. I'm going to throw something in Rich's way here. I'm just going to say, I think, you know, for me, one of the things when I read that, I instantly thought, you know, flash back to the idea of uh, the Shaleen, the elves in, in Birthright. And I thought, you know, that would be a really good way to explain how you could play an elven priest or an elven paladin or an elven druid and just say that they are all, you know, gaining their power from the ideal of nature or from, you know, a, a, a particular, you know, uh, paradigm. In uh, nice. in fourth edition terms, I think it'd be interesting to to just say elves don't make use of the divine power source, right? They to them it's it's dead to them, right? They just they don't have souls or something, <laughs> and and instead uh, when they need to do kind of diviney sort of things, they're probably actually using like the what fourth edition called the primal power source, right? The the literally the power of nature. We did a little bit of that in the uh, fourth edition dark sun setting, right? That. Fourth edition right. dark sun, the gods are, are missing or they're absent from that setting. So we said in 4e, hey, you know, there, there's no divine power source in dark sun. The people who heal you are probably people who have some amount of psionics that do similar things or the primal power source because there are were druids in dark sun and similar sort of thing. Different, different editions of the game would give you different technology, eh, different bits of game tech you could apply to sort of simulate different, different aspects of the world. Well, I had a friend of mine who just adored the uh, the concept of the Shaleen and what they were going through with their world being invaded like this. And uh, he wanted to create a character who was essentially an elven paladin, but he got he, his, you know, explanation for, you know, his divine powers was that he was a paladin of the elven renaissance. Like that was his ideal. And that was the thing that gave him power. And, and, and like, you know, because we were building on that whole idea of, you know, your bloodline gives you some divine connection, right? Cause he's, he is a blooded elf. You know, why not? It seemed like a really sweet, sweet idea. And he ended up forming a whole, uh, this is a, just a player, you know, they, I, I love to tell character stories that are, are of good, interesting, interesting players. But this guy, he built like a whole movement called the Thena She. Which was, you know, we are going to leave Cerulea and find our own world because we can't, you know, we, the, what we had here is gone. 
and it's it's point. I immediately thought Rennell. It's pointless to try and fight it. Is was his was his idea. He's like, you know, Rove Manslayer is one of the elves that is like, oh hell no, you know, we are taking our land back. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my friend wanted to play like influential character like Rove, but he didn't want. He he wanted a different, a more heroic viewpoint. Sure, that's interesting. Yeah, because uh, there there definitely are uh, in there are some of the Elven kingdoms. Are very reclusive, and there's others that that do kind of argue for a uh, for a little more engagement with humans, and and others that probably would you know pull the I'm out of here you know uh, switch if they could. So yeah, I, there, there's uh, certainly a lot of you know a lot of really interesting connotations there to explore. Uh, I got to tell you, one thing about the elves in uh, Birthright is like all their names of their realms and their guys, and like even the suggested character names, they're all basically Welsh. <laughs> right? <laughs> what that means is they're incredibly hard. I mean, and they're they're great. They're great, but they're really hard to pronounce and they're even harder to spell on a character sheet. <laughs> okay. Smoke a pack a day and drink at least a fifth of bourbon a day and you can pull off Welsh. Uh, all, I, all I'll say is I've been involved in seven Birthright campaigns, so I've seen an awful lot of elf characters and played some myself. Uh, and it's always been a challenge. I'll be like, somebody will ask me, well, how do you pronounce this? And I've, I've researched this. So I would say, well, here's what I think it is. And they say, great. How do I spell that? Uh, you know, just here's the sheet. Just copy it. Just copy it. I can't, <laughs> I'm not going to even bother with that. Um, you got to get that layer of phlegm at the back of your throat to be able to pull off. It was very Welsh. characterful. I, I want to say I, I thought it was very, very characterful, but, uh, I, I thought you did, you kind of appreciate the, the flip side of that as well. Sorry, I, I hope our English fans appreciate those cracks that I just yeah. made against the Welsh. I have no problems with the Welsh. The actual you Welsh. So I have no problems with actual Welsh yeah, people at you guys, all. Yeah, you, you guys are you awesome. You guys allow Doctor Who to shoot there in Cardiff. You guys are awesome. <laughs> Big shout out to our any any Welsh listeners, absolutely. I think we have three or four. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly something we did in, in terms of, I mentioned before, the idea that the various humans are strongly based on historic cultures. And even that, that goes to the uh, a little bit of the naming conventions too, the the way the the names of the kingdoms look, the way the names of the characters look. So yeah, the place that we kind of refer to as like the Hanseatic League Germany, the the place names look kind of German, and the character names look kind of German. And in the case of the elves, we we picked something that was uh, very Gaelic, something that was you know definitely at the deep end of uh, you know of, of what the Irish and Welsh place names and and character names would look like, and and that does give us some you know some some real tongue twisters sometime. I'll, I'll say this. I've, I've been a fan of this setting for 30 years and I just had a little like test with Richard and I, I managed to get about eight out of 10. So <laughs> <laughs> correct. Uh, anyway, um, uh, <laughs> you know, elves are not the only race though in birthright. We have, uh, dwarves, we have halflings, half elves, um, surprisingly no gnomes in birthright. And we will be addressing gnomes in a future episode of the podcast under maligned wrongly maligned races classes is there vampire i just wondered if rich had any like insight but, into you know there's no gnomes <laughs> you know for the life of me i cannot remember why we decided to exclude them <laughs> other than just to make a statement and, and be a little different uh, well it certainly is that yeah, i think the th maybe maybe you know uh nomophobia was kind of new and and shiny <laughs> <laughs> we wanted to kind of you know explore it a bit and and now it seems a little bit hackneyed and 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 stale and you know if you throw gnomes out of a setting everyone's kind of like well okay sure everyone does that <laughs> but 
I say that actually <laughs> having just thrown gnomes out of uh, the primeval right, fool setting. So you know, hey, what can I? What can I say? I guess I just don't like them. Uh, it's not the first time Richard has thrown gnomes out of a setting. I'll just say that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but might uh, might not be the last. I I, I really like because uh, I read a little bit about again. I hit the Wikipedias and the birth and I hit birthright.net and the your take on dwarves was really, really kind of interesting and cool. All of the races in Birthright are basically like the classics, but they're turned up to eleven and each one is given like a slightly unique twist. So like uh Cerulean dwarves, birthright dwarves, are even more rock like, you know, than a regular dwarf. Even, you know, even more endurable, that kind of thing. Yeah, they're like Four, six, and three hundred pounds, or something. Yeah, because like they're like that. dense, like stone. Probably don't swim terribly well, I imagine. No, no, not at all. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, they have the uh, third edition stats on the uh, birthright.net, and it's something like they get damage resistance because their skin's so thick and dense and hard. Yeah, but they sink like a rock. They get minuses to any sort of swim or tumble right. or anything like that. I've so. I've had a, a birthright GM actually use that as a thing, like if we were ever. You know, dealing with dwarves, one of the things was they were always like, uh, you know, you have to swear lots and lots of oaths that, you know, you'll never divert a river into one of our tunnels, you know, kind of a thing. (laughs) Because that would be really bad for them, you know. (laughs) Okay, we need to make sure this boat doesn't leave. Dwarf, where's the dwarf? Let's tie a rope to him. (laughs) And, like, the halflings have a really interesting connection to the Shadow World, so they can do, like, they can sort of teleport by going there uh, briefly and they can see, you know, like evil magic and things like that. So every race had something really cool uh, that was unique and different and made it just a slight twist on what you would expect to find. Yep. That's a, you know, pretty much what we were trying to do was uh, to, to give people who had a set of expectations about what they would think those races would do and just try to meet them in new ways, I guess. And the, even this extended to the humans. Uh, I think this is one of the very first times I'd ever seen different, stats for humans based on what part of the world they came from. Yep. Yeah. Their their home culture. Because the different parts of the continent were were so different culturally and had very different traditions of magic, different traditions of, of what heroes were like in that part of the world. We really wanted people to, to pay attention to what the nationality was of their character. To the point where you wouldn't want people to, for example, make up a Kanasi wizard and then have him run a kingdom in Vosgard. Yeah, just, you know, yeah. really, you know, it wouldn't be faithful to the setting. We wanted to encourage people to, to make up characters that would fit Vosgard and do Vosgard things with them. Uh, right. So the, the Vos character race, you know, had its own particular, it was basically human, it just had a very slight modification or two to say that these are the things that this culture will like and value and, and these are the things that they would not like or value. And hopefully have that be reflected in the sorts of characters people would want to make up with those rules and, and bring to the table. And you just said something that kind of kicks kicks something in my brain. You said the word wizard, and I remember something about magic, because you said this is a low magic setting in general terms, but I, I seem to recall the way it's handled is probably one of the best I've seen for someone trying to do a low magic setting in a D&D system, where it's there's low magic and high magic, and low magic's anyone can learn that, but high magic, you have to have the right bloodline or, or something like that. I, I, uh, yeah. The, 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 there, we essentially created a character class called the Magician, which was the the character that anyone who wanted to be somebody who used magic could be, but you were not going to be able to use some of the spells that just required more magical energy. You had to, 
you had to work with very small amounts of magical energy and make small subtle changes that would do uh, that would that would have their effect not principally by applying a ginormous amount of of energy to something but mostly by working on on the mind for example so uh illusion or uh, enchantment were things that that the magician could do pretty well but casting a meteor swarm not at all what that guy could do he just he just does not have the the connection to the very fabric of ma- uh, magic that you would need to just wield that much pure pure energy. Uh, however, ah, petty tricksters we called them. <laughs> what was that? Tricksters. Said petty petty, petty tricksters, tricksters we called them. <laughs> because it's, if you had a bloodline, like, you could master high magic. Right, and that, my friends, and, is some serious. And low magic was kind of like serious the equivalent shit. of an illusionist, right? Yeah, very very close. Also, uh, elves being innately magical. Um, if you were an elf, you could use high magic. Uh, now, high magic is where the where everything was at. I mean, not only did you get all the player's handbook spells, but you also got access to some stuff that was unique to Birthright, which was spells that could affect an entire force on the battlefield, or even spells that could affect your entire kingdom. Yep, the realm magic. Yeah, and that is like that's what I'm saying. Is like you 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 do feel like a petty trickster when the guy next to you can be like, you know what? <laughs> Everybody in the kingdom is now under the effect of my spell. <laughs> It's like, oh, hey, look, I lit up my staff. Whoop-de-doo. And then you do that thing that Sauron does when he implodes at the beginning of uh, uh, Fellowship of the Ring, where just the entire army falls flat. Uh, A properly prepared wizard with realm magic can literally summon an apocalyptic storm to destroy a castle. It's pretty amazing. Rocks everyone dies is not as much fun when it's the players doing it. Not just destroy a castle, right? But for example, uh, lay waste an entire province, right? An area 50 miles across. And have <laughs> yeah. Probably by thousands upon thousands of people. Uh, for example, like in the Disney movie Frozen, right? When you have that, the whole kingdom is, is frozen by, by Ilsa, right? That you would, yeah, that's the sort of thing a realm magic, uh, might be able to do is actually like, uh, you know, hey, for the next six months, it's winter. You know, and it's, it's no mm-hmm. 10 feet deep and, uh, people probably won't make it. Right, that- Do you want to build the bloodline? <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting to see how he- the song was stuck in my head. I love that song so much. Let it go. And I knew he would do something <laughs> to push it out of my head and ruin it. So, uh, so thank you for that, Ross. It's, it's out of my head now. No, you're welcome. You know, you're welcome. <laughs> so yeah, realm magic is awesome. Uh, priests and wizards could both do it. Even druids. Battle magic. Uh, was a lot of fun because in, in Birthright, it did have a system for mass battles and you could essentially be a wizard on the battlefield and not just be limited to, say, magic missile. You could say, I'm going to cast storm of magic missiles and hit everybody in that 50 man <laughs> night unit with the magic missile at once. Yeah. Uh, that kind of thing. was definitely, uh, you know, a walking piece of artillery, right? I mean, he, he could. So high magic was serious shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, um, and all of this was kind of built around the idea of trying to reestablish that empire. Well, the thing about just right for the humans, at least just go back really quick to wizards. Uh, the, they did a really cool thing about this in the setting as well. Um, all of the guys who could use high magic, right? That was a pretty low number of people total. Uh, you could basically say like, I think I think they actually established there was like a dozen dragons in the entire world. And it was not crazy to say, you know, there's only a few dozen actual high magic wizards in the entire world. So you felt super special. When you were capable of high magic, you were a, you were not just 
some guy you were, you know, a serious force to be reckoned with. And every single wizard in the setting has a particular title. Like, you're not just Robolar, right? You are the Sword Mage, or you are the Eyeless One. Or some things like that. They all have this like really cool title that that makes them slightly larger than life. Yeah, and uh, so <laughs> so you have a, to, just I was trying to remind myself of what some of the some of the wizard names were, and and you know it yeah it, it's been a little while. <laughs> I do remember the sword mage though, the guy that uh, uh, ran around yep. the barony of Gore and was a big problem. Finnegan Trusight over in uh, <laughs> Brechter slash Kanasi. Yeah, there's all kinds of really interesting, uh, powerful characters. And, and the thing about this is also um, Birthright was a relatively low-level setting. Uh, most of the rulers of the kingdoms were actually less than 10th level. Part of that was uh, the edition, right? Because second edition was... Right. Yeah, it was uh, just worked so much better... In that range of like level four to seven or so, that you didn't really want to encourage people to play too far outside the band. You know, had we done that same setting in in the three E era, I think we would have probably scattered those those ruler levels uh, much more broadly up into the up into the teens. Well, I, I just think it's interesting. Like you can look at the you can look at the the, the spread of just say and we're and the number of people with a level higher than fifteen is extremely low. Yeah, and I I, I liked I liked the idea that you could have a range in Birthright where if you if you wanted to have a relatively low-level group of heroes assume rulership, you know, it felt like you could. I mean, it just, it just felt like you as the designer were telling us that it didn't matter what level you were, you could be a king. Well, yeah, that was actually quite yeah. deliberate on our part. We wanted to make sure that you could have a, a, a plausible first-level party of monarchs. <laughs> that was the cachet of the setting, right? This is the world where your character get, is a king. Well, you know, if we say this is a world... Where you can play for five months or six months and then maybe, you know, become a king. That perhaps might have been more logical in some ways, but we decided to kind of push the boundaries towards, no, sometimes you're just going to, you know, wake up one day and find out you're in charge because, you know, you're a young man who's never really been in charge of anything, but your dad just bought it. So. And that's, that's an interesting tale to tell, I think. Yeah. You know? There's great, great tropes and stories you can do with that. And, uh, you know, the big deal, of course, is the struggle for the Iron Throne in Anweer, the idea that someday there will be another emperor. Uh, we touched on this. And he, What did Colin say he thought? Yeah, was, well, there's... <laughs> did he say was going to take over? Rich, Rich mentioned that there's like <laughs> half a dozen contenders in Anweer. There's Prince Yvonne, who is sort of like the good guy. Then there's Archduke Eric Barone, who is uh, far more pragmatic I would yeah. say, <laughs> but not evil. No, he's just pragmatic. There's the Iron Duke of Gore, and that guy, that guy is evil. <laughs> and there's the Moor of Moriad, who is basically far too busy defending the realm from the big bad, which is the Gorgon. He's far too busy holding off huge waves of monsters from invading from the north to like even be worried about it. But some people are like, you know, that guy, that guy would be a good emperor. Tell me what Colin said first. <laughs> well, I asked Colin. I, I asked Colin specifically in my uh, interview with him on uh, Rick Warden. I said, between Yvonne and Barone, who do you think would win? And uh, Colin, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, right? It is Barone, right? I usually said Barone, but uh, it, oh, well, sorry. That's that's the <laughs> cases of, of a place where the the pronunciation is very inconsistent. Um, okay, it's just a matter of what kind I, of looks I cool. I would have gone for an Italian Barone. Barone. Yeah. Well, Barone. Uh, 
Colin suggested that Baroon, simply because he is so pragmatic and willing to play a real politic, uh, had the edge. Uh, yeah, my my sense was, uh, and this is just you know the the subtle differences of of you know what the designers are kind of quietly thinking to themselves as they're working on the setting. I kind of regarded both Avenil and Baroon as 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 not terribly good guys. That uh, the the guy that I I saw uh, as perhaps actually having the best claim on the throne, if not the most power to to make a coalition to seize the throne, was actually the more of Moriad. Right. Uh, I actually at one point explored a uh, a bit of a a bit of a genealogy for for that part of the world, and in that genealogy, uh, the the Moriad family has a tie, a blood tie to the to the ruling line of Van Weir from kind of way back in the day, and probably because of that blood tie, actually has a better claim on the Iron Throne than either the the, the two countries that are kind of best claimed uh, to really pursue it. While he might actually technically have the best claim, that doesn't actually get him the Iron Throne when he's got Perun and, and, and Avenel in his way. That comes off to me as, an, again, outsider looking in. That seems the most, you know, story-centric way to do it. The guy who was selflessly sacrificing his political chances to protect the Empire itself. Yeah, is the one with the best claim. Is, <laughs> exactly. He, he's the guy who's actually, screw all your politicking and all your infighting crap i've got a real war to fight to protect the empire that's the guy i want in charge. we always we always describe the more of moriad um and his realm which is called moriad uh, he rules from a big ass fortress called shield haven um uh, <laughs> it well it's it's translates as shield haven i forget what it's actually pronounced pronounced as but bevel drawer yes bevel drawer and um from <laughs> bevel drawer we always described it as the rock upon which the gorgon shall break because he, mm. oh yeah, because we, we we always built up the Gorgon. Now in in the setting, there's a really big bad. It's like the Sauron of of uh, of Birthright is this guy called the Gorgon who used to be the brother of the last emperor, and he has been corrupted by the the bloodline of the evil god into a horrible, towering, monstrous figure called the Gorgon who has mastered both physical combat and magic, and he rules a miniature empire of his own beyond the volcanic peaks. I mean, he is an epic bad guy. <laughs> and he hungers for the Iron Throne. That's what he wants. He wants, he wants the Empire for himself. So, Demore is not just like some guy on the border. He literally is holding off the tides of, of, of monsters who want to invade and tear apart everything that exists below, below a certain point. Um, it's, it's crazy epic. It's one of the best things about the setting. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I confess that in some ways I, uh, you know, I always had a soft spot for Moriad, so I, I, I kind of saw them in a lot of ways, uh, the Moor and his family as sort of the heroes of the setting and the people that I wanted to see a story get told about going forward. Um, right. And in fact, that kind of comes out that I did actually get a chance to write that novel eventually, uh, for Birthright. It was called The Falcon and the Wolf. And then after that, you know, they, they liked that one well enough that they gave me a chance to write another one called The Shadowstone. TSR founded upon, uh, Hard, the the hard rocks of of, of uh, cold and merciless business in in, in 1996, and uh, my first two novels that I ever wrote as a professional writer, um, both got canceled in the same meeting. Don't. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a bad day at the office. Let me tell you. I I believe the other novel eventually was re reconfigured into a Forgotten Realms novel. Yeah, the um, the Shadowstone. Uh, 
I had a, uh, an opportunity to uh, to basically take it and kind of re uh, rework it and uh, make it into a Forgotten Realms novel, and and a lot of people kind of felt that it, it you know were it, some Realms fans I think are a little bit critical of the book, uh, a little bit unfairly because of that. But I really did do my research and and set it in the part of the Realms where it fits pretty well. An enormous top to bottom rewrite to uh, to make it work in the Realms. So. This is a uh, City of Ravens, if I'm correct. No, no, this is uh, the Shadowstone. It's, oh, it's called the Shadowstone. Okay, the Wolf. That's the one that's available as a free right. download. If you can, if you can find the the really obscure place where it might be hiding. So it kept its it kept its title then. Uh, yes, yes. Okay, yeah. super cool. One of the interesting things about the Shadowstone is it really shows off my vision for what the Shadow World was like in Birthright. And yes, that wound up being a a pretty interesting theme that was developed much more strongly in. Forgotten Realms in the third edition era, uh, when, you know, Troy Denning, uh, did his, uh, Return of the Archwizards from, uh, the City of Shade, you know, series and in the beginning of third edition Forgotten Realms. And we, you know, featured a lot more of this idea that, hey, there's, there's actually potentially two streams of magic in the world. There's, there's Mistra's Weave and then there's this other source of magic for people who don't want to try to go through Mistra. Uh, the Shadow Weave. Yes, the Shadow Weave, right? So. So a lot of that stuff did actually kind of develop out of some ideas I originally was banging on for the for the birthright setting, but I think was you know it actually fit in the realms reasonably well, and we had had a lot of fun there for a while. Now you know, speaking of novels and things, um, a birthright geek like myself, you can't go without mentioning there's a uh, Sierra game, a uh, computer game <laughs> called the Gorgon Gorgon's Alliance. <laughs> yeah. Um, and f- a, it's it's a uh, controversial game, as I understand it. Well, I. I enjoy it greatly, but it did come out quite it's, a long time it's ago. It's an RTS. It's it's an RTS from the mid '90s, based on Birthright. If I, if I'm yes. understanding correctly, yes, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot, but that's because I'm a Birthright nerd. It was it was it was cool to see. Like I'd never seen how they did their um, how Birthright did its uh, mass combat really until I had played Gorgon's Alliance, and I was like, oh, oh, so that's how that's supposed to work. <laughs> <laughs> All I remember about that game um, with, is it just it crushed me. It it killed me so hard. I, I could never get good enough at it to to have fun with it. Which you know, oh wow, as a creator of the setting, yeah, it was kind from, of uh, is a little Sierra. bit of a bummer, right? It's like, oh, this game's too bad <laughs> for me. Yeah, yeah, it was from Sierra, Sierra Online. Online. It was, it was built, built on the Doom Two engine. It was basically an RTS before that was. It was Warcraft, maybe. It was totally turn-based. Don't don't take RTS as a thing because it was really not a thing. It was a turn-based game. Okay, uh, but you're the video game guy, not me. I trust me. I played the hell out of Gorgon's Alliance. It's turn-based. The, o- okay. the only the only real-time elements are during uh, adventures, and even then, that's. Yeah, you can pause it and just select your ability and go on. It's just like birth, uh, the Baldur's Gate. Um, so there's that. Uh, and then there's actually, I think this is kind of a, a real bummer, like a, a missed opportunity, I think, uh, Rich, is there was this wonderful board game called Legacy of Kings. Yeah, you know, I didn't actually have much to do with that. Um, right, but you're aware of it. Uh, that was something that uh, Ed Stark uh, was playing around with some. Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, he says there was lines at going around the block every time he he would bring it out for uh, Gen Con. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And I I've always wanted to play. It. And now that, especially now that that D and D is you know kind of doing an awful lot of board games, I kind of think, hey guys, you've got this great board game sitting around, <laughs> you know, pile of money. 
that you're just not taking. Why aren't you taking this pile of money? Because make Legacy of Kings. I, everyone I've talked to that's been involved in it says it's a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah. Have you played it? Yeah, gosh. Uh, yeah, 15 years ago, right? I mean, I've not seen that in a long, long time. Usually when a game doesn't come out, you know, it lives in somebody's shoebox, right? Right. <laughs> and if you're not, you know, living in the same state with the guy who's got the shoebox anymore, you don't see it much. So yeah, I, I haven't, I haven't seen Legacy of Kings in a, in a long time. Uh, I did see something really cool though at, at a Gen Con a few years ago where uh, somebody had put together a big, uh, diplomacy, uh, variant on Burton. Where it just, it essentially just took the straight up, you know, diplomacy rules, uh, but played it on the map of Cerulea and, I want to say that the people who did it actually made like a big giant sized board that was, you know, like six feet by six feet or something. And it looked gorgeous and it was, it looked like it'd be a lot of fun, but I was up to my eyeballs and other stuff and I couldn't stick around to, uh, to watch or try to play. So, you know, now that I've got you here, I, I gotta kind of mention a couple things, um, about the, the line, like the birthright line. We talked about like the little bitty source books that they did for all the, the set, the, uh, the individual realms. But I think that one of the strengths of the line, um, probably the strongest bit, was the support books that it had. The Book of Regency, the Book of Magecraft, the Book of Priestcraft. Sure. I think those were all high-quality products. Those were excellent. Um, and again, this is kind of where the line transitioned from you and, and Colin over to um, Ed Stark and Carrie Bebris, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I did have a little bit of birthright stuff uh, after the box set. Um, I, worked, I worked on the Book of Priestcraft uh, a fair bit. I worked on... Uh, the Kanasi book, uh, which I think was Cities of the Sun. Yes, Cities of the Sun. And God, I love Cities of the Sun. It's fantastic. Oh, thank you. Um, um, we, we played our most recent Birthright game set there, actually. Uh, yeah, weirdly enough, the, uh, I had to invent a whole set of naval rules, uh, for Cities of the Sun because so much of the, that area is seafaring. Right. And they wound up, uh, pulling out those naval rules and publishing them as a separate standalone product. Which I own. <laughs> but yeah, it was very, uh, it was very strange to discover. Uh, wait, I was actually working on one thing and it turned out we, yeah, you know, we made something totally different out of it. But, uh, uh, yeah, but, uh, other than that, I, I relatively soon after I had wrapped up my, you know, uh, that work on Birthright, I was, uh, pulled over into, uh, beginning to do some work on the alternative game. And so, you know, other than getting a chance to kind of, oh, I, I did, at least one of those 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 thin uh, those thin uh, realms uh, source books too. I, I did the one on Rosson. Of course, um, the Black Barony. Yes, yeah, yeah. But uh, but yeah, I, you know, part part of the downside about about the schedule we had in those days was you know a lot of times you didn't you didn't get a chance to stay on anything really long. You would just kind of you know uh, it'd be time to, to to start working on 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 the next product, whatever that is. TSR back in the in that that era, the the mid nineties. Was routinely publishing well over a hundred game source books uh, a year across all the different product lines. You know, there was just an immense number of of things getting written by by an immense number of people, really, uh, compared to like uh, the way uh, Wizards of the Coast manages the D and D line over the last few years, where you know it's it's more like a dozen releases a year, not you know not a hundred. Well, I wanted to ask you a thing about one of these um, these realms books. Well, not the realms, the setting books, I should say. Because we, we talked about Cities of the Sun, we talked about Brechter, and we talked about uh, Vosgard a little bit. Uh, then there's the Rear Highlands. I wanted to ask you a question because, the re- in, in, and I, don't, I mean this like in the, in the most respectful way because I love Birthright, but I feel like, I always feel like the Rear Highlands was kind of the least, the, the weakest in, in, in the overall, like, you know, 
theme and paradigm of of, of all the uh, the realms books. And you know, I understand why that is. I mean, you got when when you have a whole bunch of books, there's always going to be one that's slightly better than the others, etc. Did you ever play Skyrim by any chance? Uh, uh just a little bit. <laughs> well, because I played Skyrim, and let me tell you, I think you know that is what. I think of when I think of the Rear, Rear Highlands because it is totally, it is totally like Viking land recovering from an imperial conquest. It is totally that. <laughs> yeah, I, I I could totally see that. Yeah, the the weird thing about it is we were trying to go with two different streams there of, of obviously very Viking influenced, uh, but secondly also very uh, Druidic influenced. And in some ways, it was always a bit of a uh, of an uneasy marriage, and so I, I feel like in some ways the Rierick area never really kind of took off quite the same way that that some of the other areas did. So, uh, unfortunately, we're I think we're going to run a little long here just because I I love this setting so much. We're just talking about it, talking about it, talking about it. Uh, I'm going to jump around a little bit on some of these uh, these bullet points that Daryl laid out for us so well. If you, one of the things that's probably the most iconic about Birthright, you know, besides all the, the setting elements we talked about, um, is the mechanics of its domain management system. Okay. Which was really a pioneer. I mean, it was a pioneer in that arena for role-playing because role-playing, I think, before Birthright had been, you know, for the most part, like 99% had been about kicking in the door in the dungeon and, and or, or doing things on, on a small, you know, individual level. Birthright comes along and like, no, no. And you go back to the town and you, you might have to defend the town at best. Right. But... I, I gotta say, I really wish, uh, Birthright was more on my radar with some of the stuff I was trying to do in some of my games in Greyhawk and Forgotten Realms, if nothing else, so I could understand those domain rules a little bit better. I, I've just kind of gleaned over them, but it, it seemed like a really, really smart way to handle managing an entire kingdom while still being able to, without going into basically becoming an accountant. Yeah, I, it did a really, Elegant job of of abstracting a lot of that, yeah. Well, thank you. Exactly. I, I came to that actually as as a long time uh, war gamer. You know, even before I had started playing D anD D as a kid, uh, I was a big fan of the uh, of the various uh, Avalon Hill games, for example. And so I I came to the part of the game where uh, we were going to be talking about you know we need to provide people interesting ways to manage their kingdom and interesting ways for kingdoms to interact with each other. And so very naturally, I kind of returned to my, my sort of wargaming roots and built the domain rules to essentially be, in some ways, a very light wargame. And in fact, you know, if you're not f very familiar with wargames, it's, it's maybe a little bit hard to see that in some places. But some of the ways that, for example, the war moves work when it's time to actually begin moving moving units around and evading people's provinces and how that sequence of play works, there's definitely places where the, the wargaming roots really kind of come out and, and shine a little more. It's funny because I went back and looked at those domain rules just a few months ago. I was, I was uh, playing around with an idea of, of a campaign to run. And I think there's definitely some things I would, I would do to maybe try to simplify them at this point. I, I think one of my characteristics as, as a designer when I first started my career is I was very tempted to, to sometimes complexify things that I would, I would now, with a little more uh, seasoning, try to, try to keep simpler. Well, if you don't mind a little feedback on them, actually, uh, I, th I think they're great. I love them. Um, but there are some things I wish... I, I could uh, do it a little differently. I always wanted to see like more rules for building monuments and stuff, like like in Civilization. Oh, sure, yeah. And I always wanted some way to have like hidden holdings because it it always felt like you know if you're the king, you you know there's a thieves guild in town. 
you know <laughs> it didn't it didn't feel like you could ever really do the whole like well the king mustn't ever find out that we have the hidden temple of cultists because <laughs> I, I feel kind of like a dick for bringing up another game of thrones reference but you need a little finger you do. on the small council you totally do you need a little finger on the small council so that would be a thing that i would like to see uh for sure and uh lastly there's because of the way that birthright was set up as a setting Wizards drew their power from the land. And what that meant was is that wizards, if they owned, if they were ruling a province and stuff, they could never build that province up. They could never have civilization in a city and like thriving commerce or anything. It always had to be this, this remote tower in the wilderness. And, you know, while there's nothing wrong with the remote tower in the wilderness, this is also at the same time when we had Kelvin Arunson in his tower in the middle of Waterdeep. Right. <laughs> right. So it, it, I was, I was like that, that felt a little dichotomous to me. I always was like, you know, I could see a druid where a druid's like, no, 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 no. There, there can be nobody living here in order for me to gain power. That's actually one of the, one of the things that I think I would do differently. I think I uh, reflected on this maybe in a, in a blog post or a discussion I was having. I might have actually been the, now I think about it, the interview I did the interview. A, a couple of years ago. Right. Where I feel that in 4th edition D&D, when we came out with the idea of the different power sources, that I realized that the primal power source for D&D 4th edition, oh, that was kind of the thing I was I was trying to wrap my head around uh, when I was thinking about those wizard sources of magic and birthright. And I think that what I would probably do is have that uh, nature-inspired power actually work through a druid regent in some way. And for the wizards, I think I would actually try to do something... Something a lot more idiosyncratic, something that, that works totally unlike the way other character holdings works, like uh, an artifact that's yeah. a holding. Yep, that's exactly what I, I that, that's what I was kicking around at the time was the idea that that a wizard might be you know might be powerful because he oh gosh what was uh what was the thing that Thulsa Doom had the ring um a locust is probably what you're thinking of in, a locust in, yeah a locust yeah that might be a Shadowrun term but yeah. I, that's the first thing that popped in my head. Or like, Thulsa Doom had a very deep baritone voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I mean, there's, because uh, there's certainly a, a zillion examples of, of that sort of thing around in fiction. I'm thinking of things like the very uh, kind of creepy and disturbing book from uh, The Face in the Frost. Or, uh, or heck, the Necronomicon from, uh, from Army of Darkness, right? The, the ring. Or the magic mirror from, uh, the Maleficent. Ring. Yeah, the magic mirror. That's actually an excellent example, right? Of a, of a great way that you would like to be able to say, this is something you have to keep somewhere and you want to have it safeguarded. So that's why you have a tower, uh, not measured in, in armies and territory. I mean, unless you choose to actually have those things under, under your dominion. But if you don't, you're and still, you know, a power that needs to be considered when anybody around you makes a move. And I think that's Dar that's kind of cool. Daryl suggested the One Ring. Yeah, a very good example. Sauron poured all his power into the One Ring to bring all the realms under his control. They rebelled, blah, blah, blah. But that ring was his power. And that, that's kind of... That, yeah, absolutely. That seems like the quintessential example of what you're kind of describing here. Yeah. In a way. It, it, and correct me if I'm wrong, please. Uh, it sounds right to I me. I think that's, that's a, a pretty fair synopsis, right? I mean, uh, yeah, the, the One Ring, obviously. I would almost say that the combination of, like, Barad-Dur and the One Ring, uh, right? Because, right. Because uh, Saruman was yeah. also yeah. really kind yeah. of active in the darn tower. He didn't get up and walk around for that very much once he settled in. <laughs> yeah. 
and you know, again, I just uh, we're we're feeling a bit of the time crunch, so I'm going to jump around a little bit. Um, but I, I wanted to, you know, now that I've kind of given you some criticisms, I want to talk about some of the things I think are just like the wonderful bits about Birthright. Well, the, 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 there's kind of something I kind of wanted to know about. I'm mostly sold on Birthright as someone who didn't grow up playing it, so I, I'm kind of wondering. We know about the political stuff. We know about the divine right to rule being an actual game mechanic in the game. What else really sets this apart and makes it feel unique from from other campaign settings well, that might be similar? In time? Yeah, well, that's where I'm going with that, exactly. Uh, Ross hasn't mentioned yet, really, was the idea of the Onshalen. Um Yes. Right, the, the big bad guys. The monsters are unique. That they're, they're, you know, he mentioned the idea of the Gorgon, but there are many monstrous creatures that received that divine infusion of, of power from this long-ago battle, just like there were uh, humans and other heroic characters. And those monstrous characters, many of I, I them went some... founded realms of their own. Now, they tend to be smaller and obviously way more hostile than, than the realms founded by humans. Within its own realm, a monster had every bit as much power as, as a mighty human king. And so, therefore, it was no simple matter of saying, well, you know, there's this guy, the Gorgon, he's a big problem, let's just get the best 500 knights we can find and go in there and, and kill him. Yeah, no, he's, he's, you know, he's got armies. He's, he's tough. Even the ones that didn't necessarily have a whole lot of armies just within their own uh, domain. And it, and there were characters like, uh, let me see, uh, the serpent, uh, the banshee, the hag, the basilisk, uh, the basilisk. You're right. Uh, the chimera, right. That there were many of these, these kind of really mythical creatures were, were things that had once been human and now were almost uh, godlike in their in their power and their evil and and presented a real serious threat to the uh, to the people trying to run the kingdoms that that happened to border those lands and they they were just an epic they they felt epic right they felt like they were these were legendary beasts that you could defeat if you were heroes that could take out the basilisk not just a basilisk the basilisk you were amazing and there's something about that scale too, the sheer scale of the setting, where you can think about the stakes and how high they are. Like you can look at a map and see four or five provinces that are nothing but a poisoned waste labeled the basilisk. And you're like, oh shit. You know? <laughs> yep. And, and, you know, I felt that, uh, once again, that was something that people seem to really enjoy as far as a distinctive characteristic of the setting. Uh, Various human nationalities, the the domain rules, the the bloodlines for the characters. I feel a little guilty about the bloodlines now. Once again, as a with a little more seasoning as a designer, I feel like the the bloodline powers were were kind of like cracked for PCs, right? I mean, a lot of people really liked playing with getting these crazy, you know, powerful good abilities just from being born to these different bloodlines. I don't know if the setting really needed that system in retrospect, but. Uh, it sure did make people feel good about rolling up their characters. With, without, you know, I, I am I am an enormous fan of the, of the of the setting, and I love everything about it. But at the same time, I see where you're coming from. I think I think just the right to rule alone would have probably been enough. Yeah, not the superpowers that came with that. <laughs> yep, exactly. Right. That's that. That's that simplicity versus complexity thing I was mentioning a little while ago. Right. It just you know just it could have it could have done the same job with a little bit less if if you follow my thinking there. Well, one thing I thought was really great about this as well, you know, when you look at the, again, a big deal of Birthright is the maps. You look at the map, you can see where all the, 
the lines are drawn and, and, and kind of get an idea of not only the things that are threatening you and the things that were, you know, the places you can go, the agency nodes, as we like to say, where you can change things in the world. But you guys did a really good job of actually including a lot of intentional white space, a lot of places that were unclaimed. And you as a ruler were always like, yeah, that's, I don't have to fight an army in there, baby. I just have to go plant my flag. Yep. One of the many times birthrights come up in this is when we specifically talked about white space. Right. And Ross was very, very clear that he was impressed by there are these kingdoms that no source book is ever going to say, hey, this place is claimed and this place is claimed and this place is claimed. It's no, your player characters can go here and play. Uh, specifically the five peaks in Anweer. Uh, the giant downs in the rear Highlands. Um, in fact, I, this may have been a, a, a boo-boo, but there's actually an unclaimed province right next to, uh, uh, Diomed in Enweir. Uh, <laughs> it, it doesn't even have a name. It's just like a completely unnamed empty province. And we were always like, ooh, I wonder what's there. <laughs> oh, weird. <laughs> Naming that province was actually a really fun thing to do. Uh, we were like, I want, I, I went f- directly for that province just so I would have the privilege of naming it whatever I wanted it to name it. <laughs> I think it might have been a boo boo on the map, but, uh, yeah, it's, if you look, it's there. It's right on the edge of the five peaks. There's a completely unnamed province. So yeah, it was, it, the white space was great. Uh, the epic feel. Uh, let's, uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about the visuals. Birthright was defined by the artwork of Tony Sudlow, and I think I'm Sudlow, pronouncing yeah. that right. Sudlow. Yep. Um, it's spelled S-C-Z-U-D-L-O. Yep. And just, just like, uh, Tony Dieterlisi did for the Planescape setting, or Jeff Easley did for the Early Forgotten Realms, Tony Sudlow's artwork is really the keystone that draws you in visually and connects everything together and makes you feel like this is a living, breathing world. Yeah, Tony was a great guy to work with. Uh, I was always, uh, you know, welcome to drop on down to the artist bullpen and stop in and, and chat with him about the setting and, and what we were trying to do with it. He, he had a lot of fun with the, the big battle scene painting that forms the cover of the box set. The cover of the box set is actually only a portion of that, of that painting. It, it goes and, and wraps, uh, quite a bit on either side. Uh, of all things, I think there might be a mouse pad that shows a lot more of that painting than, than what was wow. on, <laughs> on the, on the, on the box set cover. But, uh, yeah, it, it was like, uh, if you ever like a, uh, you know, when you're a kid, if you ever like, you know, little, like draw stick figures and have like little army men battles on your, on your notebook paper, of like, oh, this guy <laughs> shoots this guy. You draw a little dotted line and, you know, the guy's falling over and he's, yeah. Tony was kind of doing that with his artwork. He was like, yeah, this guy's stabbing this dude with a, you know, with a lance and, but he's got this other guy coming up behind him was about to hit him with that, that big pointy thing, you know, and yeah, so he was totally, totally goofing on that and, and you can uh, find his DeviantArt page, actually, and order prints of some of the unpublished uh, Birthright pieces, like the Raven. I actually own a copy of that. Oh, cool. So you should, uh, yeah, any fans of Birthright should totally look him up on DeviantArt. We'll have a link in the show notes. Like I said, going into this, I knew everything I knew about Birthright I learned from Ross. <laughs> uh, I've done a little bit of research before we recorded, but you guys have completely sold me. I did want to point out one thing. The Birthright campaign setting for second edition is currently available on D&D Classics, and we will have a link in the show notes to this, as a PDF for $9.99. Wow. So you can get the PDF of, I assume it's everything that was in the original box set. I'm not entirely sure yet, because I haven't 
purchased my copy yet because we're in the middle of recording and I don't want to slow down the <laughs> Skype with my download. But uh, yeah, I'm freaking sold. Uh, other than going to that PDF, what would you guys suggest would be the best way to kind of get into Birthright as a campaign setting? Uh, you know, I felt that the, the birthright.net guys with the third edition conversion of the setting did a pretty Woo! good job. You know, so, I mean, and and that's one I bet you, you could probably get your hands on a lot easier than, I mean, I'm sure there's old second edition birthright sets that are around on eBay and stuff, but you'd probably pay an arm and a leg for them. And, and, and the third edition set obviously actually, is, uh, is a... eBay and Amazon are actually very, very reasonably priced. It's very rarely much more than a couple of bucks more than the cover price. Wow, okay. But, well, if you like, yeah. if you like birthright and uh, maybe you want something a little more... If you like the idea of it anyway, and you maybe want something a little more modern, um, Rob Schwab's Song of Ice and Fire roleplay has a lot of similar themes. Sure, yeah. Uh, and there's ability to create your house, and again, it's Game of Thrones, so it's very similar politically in uh, some of the things you can do. And there is a... Uh, and, uh, Green Ronin uh, Green Ronin has a version of uh, Game of Thrones that's licensed to the TV series rather than the books, I believe. They actually just today released a free download, which was the Book of Hordor. How to hoarder by hoarder. Hoarder, hoarder, hoarder. Because today is April yes. Fool's Day when we're recording. Nice. When, when, when we're recording this, yes. I will have a link in the show notes because I think it's one of the most brilliant April Fool's products I have seen since the Shadowrun one back when FanPro was in charge. And they gave you the option to play uh, Great Dragon PCs. So the other one I would <laughs> suggest is uh, similar thematically is uh, the Kingmaker Adventure Path for Pathfinder. Oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, I know the guys at Paizo really well, and uh, the Kingmaker Adventure Path was, they, they they definitely ripped a lot of Birthright was there putting that together. Uh, they were fanboys, too, on that. Awesome. It has to be great for you, Rich, you know, 30 years later to find all these people who just love the setting so much. Yeah. Well, not, maybe not 30 years, but, you know, 20 years. <laughs> 20, but that's okay. <laughs> not quite that old. I, I did want to ask you something while I've got you on the line, uh, Mr. Baker. I have asked uh, Margaret Weiss this about uh, Dragonlance. I have asked Keith Baker about this about Eberron. Have you been in touch with Wizards of the Coast lately? Because they have been making a big push to bring back original creators. They've got Ed Greenwood on board already. Margaret Weiss has said she's uh, apparently, which is, has been talking to Keith Baker for Eberron stuff. Has Wizards been in contact with you for Birthright by any chance, trying to tie into the pre-post Game of Thrones push that a lot of this political fantasy has? Uh, short answer is uh, no, I haven't, I haven't talked about the Birthright stuff with the Wizards guys in quite a long time. Um, I, it's the forgotten setting. Uh, relations with Wizards, and uh, uh, in fact, uh, I, I've done some uh, work for them relatively recently. I, I think and this is kind of a, a bummer, but I, I don't think Wizards really even ever remembers that they own it, honestly. I, I believe that's true. Uh, I, I will take everything in my power to start kicking people because I, I am completely sold on Birthright. I want to play Birthright. Hey, Ross, do you want to run Birthright for me on Skype? <laughs> I'll get people together. I, would lo- I, I think it would be a lot of fun to do. Um, and, and it's kind of, that's, that's kind of one of the reasons why I wanted to do this show is because I just don't think, I, I don't think people are aware of it. I don't even think the company that owns it remembers that they have it. And it's kind of a bummer because it's such a great setting. And this would be a great time and to bring it back because of Game so of Thrones. It's perfect for the time. Exactly. Yeah. You know, my final thoughts on it is it was incredibly inspiring to me in my career. I think it needs to be remembered. 
because it was a pioneer in several areas. And the art of domain management as a thing in RPGs is really, you know, core to that as, as something that as a game designer, I find just uh, very uh, enticing to me. It's a missed opportunity that we haven't really seen too many more domain management games um, since then. Uh, someday I'd like to do a Kickstarter to maybe rescue Birthright as some uh, inspired by, you know, they, they did the Dragon Kings, which was inspired <laughs> by Dark Sun, you know, and it's basically Dark Sun. <laughs> maybe someday we'll do, uh, you know, Bloodright and, uh, you know, it's Birthright. <laughs> that would be a cool Kickstarter to run. Uh, that's all I'm saying. It's crossed my mind once or twice as far as what, what I could do in that direction. It's, uh, <laughs> but it's something that's easier done, you know, with wizards rather than against them, I think. I, I understand. But yeah. sometimes, like, you gotta, you know, you gotta go, like, Dragon Kings, you know, sometimes you just gotta, you know, do your thing. There you go. I got some friends over at Wizards. I'll start kicking them. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Richard, uh, what are your final thoughts on Birthright as we, uh, go to last call? You know, it's something that I, I look back on and, it's the nature of a creative a creative job that you always look back at and think maybe I could have done this a little bit different or that a little bit different, but uh, but by and large I'm really proud of it. Right, it's something that uh, I did pretty early in my career, and it you know a, a lot of it just hung together and worked very very well. And in a lot of ways, I think probably about the best world that I've built at least up until uh, yeah the one I built just you know just last year. <laughs> so primeval tool, primeval tool. Uh, you know, it, it's very flattering that uh, so many people have, have gotten so much fun out of uh, playing in my world. It's a strange thing, but but boy, it's a it, it is flattering at the end of the day. Daryl, do you have any final thoughts? Like I said, I am completely sold. I don't know much about the setting, but everything hearing you guys talk about all the stuff going on, answering my questions. I want to play, damn it. Uh, uh, it was the, you doing anything after the recording, Ross? It, I, I, it was the more of Moria that sold you. I know. I know. As soon as we talked oh. about him, you were like, yeah, that's, I'm in. <laughs> right? Am I right? The, the John, the John Snow of Birthright. Yes. Oh, I did it again. <laughs> no, he's I? totally, oh. he's totally the John Snow of Birthright. You know, and that's, that's the thing is you can draw those parallels, but. Yeah, we need to, uh, last call, the Imperial Soldiers are going to throw us out of the, uh, the tavern if we don't wrap it up. So, uh, Rich, do us a favor, um, tell the listeners what your latest thing is and where they can find you on the interwebs. Sure. Uh, if you're curious on what I'm up to these days, uh, the, uh, most current thing would be the Primeval Fool campaign setting, uh, which, uh, is a Conan versus Cthulhu-esque, uh, sword and sorcery fantasy world. And, uh, that is being offered through, uh, uh, my little company, uh, Sasquatch Game Studio, LLC. And the place you can kind of come to find out more about that would be, uh, all one word, uh, SasquatchGameStudio.com. And you have a blog that has an awesome name. I'm jealous of the name of your blog. <laughs> yes, I, I do blog, uh, uh, a little bit infrequently, but I try to do better at it, uh, uh at, uh, Atomic Dragon Battleship. <laughs> what a great name. <laughs> All right, and uh, we ran long in this show, uh, but that would have been gonna happen. that would have so been the name of this podcast, Atomic Dragon Battleship. That would be a good man. subtitle. Uh, <laughs> but we we did, of course, run long because this is uh, you know definitely a, something right up my alley. And, and I, on behalf of Daryl and myself, and of course, probably everyone at Birthright.net, um, who I always shout out to <laughs> if I can, uh, we're deeply grateful to you, Mr. Baker, for coming on and uh, giving us your thoughts. Hey, it was, it was thank my you pleasure. very much for coming on. 
Uh, we'd love to have you back on the show, of course, uh, anytime to talk about anything regarding Dungeons and Dragons, Forgotten Realms, Primeval Thule, any, pretty much anything you want to talk about. You're, you have an open ticket to come back on and, and chat with us. I kind of would like to talk to you about alternatives. Oh, yeah. You know, that would be a good one to bring about. Yeah, I would be happy to sometime. And uh, until then, we're going to say goodbye, and uh, may all your hits be crits. <laughs>